Welcome, and thank you for joining me for the 72 Podcast. If this is your first time listening, I would like to give you a sincere thank you and ask you, if you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe so that way you don't miss out on the next episode that we'll be putting out here in a couple weeks. Today is part two of the fallacy of good and evil. If you missed out on part one, make sure you go back, listen to part one. Uh, It'll be a little confusing in part two because they do build on top of each other. Um, So here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying God isn't good when I say that he doesn't view things as good and evil. God is the only good one, as Jesus says in Mark 10, 18. You see, he tells a story here, uh, Mark does, about the young rich man. So in Mark 10, 17 through 27, here's what it says. It says, as, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowfully. For he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom. And they were exceedingly astonished. And said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, with God, for all things are possible with God. See, Jesus here is trying to say it takes more than just being good or following the law in order to go to heaven. He says something that's interesting. He says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples are astonished by what Jesus says. Clearly, this guy must be doing something right. He's rich. He has it all. Truly, God has blessed him. He's got plenty of money. Here's the question, though. Is money good or bad? Is money a reflection of how good you are? Well, the Bible does say money is evil, right? No, not exactly. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What is important is what is in the heart, not our deeds. It's not about how much money we have or how, quote, blessed we are. 
Intention and motivation are the sign of good and evil. I can do a good deed but still have evil intentions. You see, the Bible also says that the heart is a deceitful above all things. It says that in Jeremiah 17, 9. The rich man believed in his heart that he was good and he would get into heaven. He believed that his blessings were an indication of his goodness. It became tied to his identity. And when asked to leave it all behind, instead of following the truth, he believed the lie. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to me or comes to the Father except through me. Instead of saying that he's perfect or he's good, he says that he is the truth. Jesus views himself as the truth. Both statements are true. Jesus is good and Jesus is the truth. You see, Jesus is God incarnate. You see, we say that we are living our truth, not the truth. We have allowed the truth to become subjective. And when something becomes subjective, what happens is it has many sources. Google defines subjective as based on or influenced by personal feelings, taste, or opinions. Everyone has personal feelings and opinions. And when the truth comes from us, it's different depending on the person. Jesus said he is the truth. He is the source of truth. When we, not being able to be objective because our hearts can be deceitful, we are subjective, meaning that we are biased to how we feel about ourselves or about a situation that we're facing. Our feelings can over or under how we view our truth or our identity. Our feelings can hide a lie we believe and create barriers that protect it from the truth. We, like the rich men, are unwilling to give up who we say we are. We have built a life based on something we're not. We ask questions like the lawyer did, asking who is my neighbor? The story is well known and talked about often. There is a man that is left for dead, and he gets passed by a Levite and a priest, and the good Samaritan stops by and helps. The moral of the story is that everyone is your neighbor. But I love the way that Martin Luther King Jr. sums it up. He says this, he says, The first question the priest asked, the first question the Levite asked was, If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Even the most religious of us can be like the priest or the Levite, which in Jesus' day were the most religious you could get, the priest being involved in the temple activities and the Levite coming from a lineage of priests that were held up as the, the designated family where the temple leaders came from. They believed the lie that adherence to the law makes them good. They replaced the spirit of the law found in Leviticus 19.18, where it sums up the previous verse with this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. With I shall love who I feel my neighbor is. They're trying to find a loophole by defining who their neighbor is. When we define who a neighbor is, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get ourselves out of being committed to others. You see, 
in a culture as today as we are so divided, it would be easy for me to say that that man that is hurting, that man that is left for dead on the side of the road doesn't look like me, doesn't believe what I believe. I'm going to leave him alone where he is. You see, one of the biggest things about this story is that the Samaritan stopped by. The Levite and the priest were supposed to be holy, were supposed to be righteous, were supposed to be held up. They were supposed to be different. They were supposed to be following all the laws. They were supposed to be the pinnacle of loving your neighbor. You see, Jesus using a Samaritan is on purpose. At the time, a Samaritan was a second-class citizen, especially to the Jews. They were seen as people that did not follow the law. They were seen as unrighteous. They were seen as people that wouldn't stop and help someone that was suffering. You see, this good Samaritan, we today see it as, oh, it is very good to be a good Samaritan. Well, back in the day, it wasn't good to be a Samaritan. Not at all. It was the exact opposite. Like I said earlier, you were seen as a second-class citizen. But here's the thing. Jesus using the Samaritan to illustrate that good is not because you follow the law. Being good is because you do what is right. That's why I like what Martin Luther King said there. He said, the Levite and the priest worried about what would happen to them, while the good Samaritan worried about what would happen to him. There's a big difference whenever you align your heart with God's. You see, when I align my heart with God, I don't worry necessarily about what's going to happen to me. I worry about what's going to happen to my fellow man, what's going to happen to my neighbor. I think about how can I love my neighbor as I love myself? How can I care for my neighbor as I would care for myself? You see, we're trying not to. To find a loophole when our heart is aligned with God's heart. You see, a loophole is a hole in our character that we try to justify with our feelings. There's a saying in the tech world that it's not a bug, it's a feature. It's what Mylan did to justify what they did. Oh, we spent a billion dollars, so we felt like that justified raising the price of the EpiPens. Without context, that sounds like a lot. But when you factor in the company's average income is 4 to $5 billion a year, with that cost factored in, that tells the story that instead of focusing on loving people, they love money. Heather Brush, the CEO of Mylan, said when asked if she felt sorry for what happened, I wasn't going to be apologetic for operating in the system that existed. What I decided to do was put my efforts and energy to talk about what needed to be fixed and how broken the system was. You see, she isn't sorry for what happened and clearly would continue to do the same thing because she isn't breaking any laws. She's just operating within the system. She believed the lie that operating and taking advantage of a system made Mylan what Mylan was doing as a company okay. In reality, when we base what we perceive as good on a lie, it voids out the, quote, good we're trying to accomplish. What truth does is it allows us to base what is good on what is right. 
rather than basing what is good and evil, for that matter, on what we perceive as good and evil. To sum it up, we must remember our source of truth must be outside of us, meaning truth cannot be subjective. The truth is found in the Word of God. He is the source of all truth. When you base who you are on a truth not found in the Word of God, you're setting yourself up for heart. Okay, so where do we go from here? What do we do with this information? Well, for starters, we have to do what Craig Rochelle calls and thought audit. You see, I love this term, a thought audit, because it allows us to be able to look at what we're thinking, what we're believing, and how we can better pursue what is right and not just what is good. You see, the Bible also talks about renewing your mind. When we renew our mind, what we're doing is we're capturing thoughts and making sure that we are bringing them to the Bible. So if I have a thought like, well, I just feel worthless. That's not what the Word says. The Word does not say that I'm worthless. The Word says that I'm a conqueror, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, when I replace my thought, the lie, with the truth of the Word, what I'm doing is I'm allowing myself to be able to take down the strongholds that are in my mind. And when I take down the strongholds that are in my mind, what I'm doing is I'm allowing myself to be able to replace those with actual truth. And when I replace a lie with truth, what I'm doing is I'm setting myself up for success. So I encourage you, look at the thoughts that you're thinking. Don't just let them pass by, but catch them and make sure that you're writing them down and putting them up against the word of truth, the word of God. Make sure that you're filling your heart, your mind, your soul with the truth rather than what you're feeling because what you're feeling may not always be right. You see, I can one day not feel like I like my wife, but then the next day I really like her. As I tell my kids, you don't have to like each other, but I need you to always love each other. You see, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that love conquers all, and what I know is is that when I tell myself that I will always love my wife, I'm not allowing my feelings to dictate whether I love her or not. I'm making the choice to stay in love with her rather than falling out of love. And I'm believing what the Bible says when it says love conquers all. I'm believing that it conquers over my feelings. Now, like I said, I might not always like my wife every day, but I will dang sure always love her my wife. Another thing we can do is we can pray. We can pray these things over ourselves. I love what my pastor says, Pastor Brooks out of Grace Church. He says this, the person you listen to the most is yourself. And when you pray, what you're doing is you're telling yourself all the things that God has for you. When I pray through Jeremiah 29 11, which says, for I know the plans that I have for you. What I'm doing is I'm telling myself that God has plans for me to give me a future and a hope. I'm getting rid of the lie that says God doesn't care about me. I'm getting rid of the lie that says God doesn't have a future for me. What I'm doing is I'm replacing that lie with the truth. The truth that is God has a plan and a future for me. 
If you don't know what to pray and you're struggling to find something to pray, pray through your favorite verse. And if you can't find a verse, Google it. Google doesn't just have to be a place where you find cat videos. You can also use it to find inspiring pieces of the word. If I know a just a part of a scripture, I know I can toss it in Google and I will be able to find the full scripture so I can pray through it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your truth. Though our hearts might be deceitful, your word never is. Please renew our minds with your truth, giving us the ability to have and make lasting change based on not just what is good, but on what is right. In your name we pray. Amen. Some of the illustrations I use can be found in Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game, the autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr., and of course the Bible. I highly recommend all of these books. They challenge you to think on a different level. If you like what you heard, give me a like, review, and subscribe so you don't miss out on any of my upcoming content. Thank you for listening to The 72 Podcast. God bless.